If you have a Bible, please uh, open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of this wonderful book. There should be an outline in your bulletin. If you didn't get one and want to get up and grab one, feel free. Uh, There are printed messages at both exits. You can get one, or if you have an electronic device, you can access those on the church website. The last 23 years' worth of messages are on there, both printed and audio. We're coming to Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21 down through verse 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, And not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, or that last word should better be translated, a servant. One of life's most unpleasant experiences is to be at odds with someone. Maybe it's someone in your family could be a neighbor, somebody at work, but wherever it is, it's never pleasant because conflicts always produce anxiety and stress. It's not fun. On the other hand, one of life's most pleasant experiences is when you are reconciled to someone that you had been at odds with, when you make peace with a former enemy. I think when that barrier that caused the hostility is removed, there's just a sense of joy and and release. The pressure is gone, and it's just wonderful when a former enemy becomes a friend. Many people don't realize it, but they've got a serious, formidable enemy. In fact, there's no worse enemy to have in the entire universe Because these people are an enemy of the living God. And he knows all, and he sees all, and he is everywhere. You can't escape from him. And our sin means that outside of Christ, we are enemies of God himself. And if we aren't reconciled to him, then... When we die, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, we will be under his eternal judgment. And so alienation from God ought to cause people more anxiety than any strained human relationship ever causes. God's enemies are in desperate need of being reconciled to him, even though often they aren't even aware there's a problem. Now, that's what Paul's describing in our text. He says, we were formerly enemies of God, alienated from him, and engaged in hostile deeds against him. But God, he says, because of his great love, he sacrificed his own son on our behalf, 
to move us from being enemies of God to being friends. From alienation to reconciliation. And being reconciled, now we have the responsibility to continue in the faith and to serve him. As you know, the Colossian church was in danger of false teachers. These guys were infiltrating the church. Uh, Paul's corrective to that was to lift up, to extol the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we saw last time in verses 15 to 20, Paul lifts up Jesus as the sovereign creator over all that is. He shows that he's the head of his body, the church, and he shows that he is to be preeminent in everything. Then in verse 20, he says that through Christ, God is going to reconcile all things to himself. And as I explained, that does not mean that everybody's going to be saved. That's not true. Um, but I believe that Paul is talking about how God is going to, through Christ, restore all of creation to its original glory uh, that was um, marred when man fell into sin. Now what Paul is doing in our text is applying the reconciliation God worked through the cross of Christ to uh, the Colossian believers. He's reminding them in verse 21 of their former situation, alienated. Verse 22 of the great price that God paid through Christ to reconcile them. And then in verse 23, He adds that they're responsible to continue in the faith, not being moved away by the false teachers. And then at the end, he mentions himself as a servant of the gospel. We can tie it all together by saying that we who now enjoy the blessings of reconciliation are responsible then to continue in the faith of the true gospel. If... This morning, you might think that you are immune to false teaching. I hope you give a second thought to the fact that you may not adequately appreciate how crafty the enemy is in bringing false teaching into churches and how weak we are so that we're vulnerable to it. In 1 Corinthians 10:12, Paul says, Therefore, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so the danger is there. Over the years, I have watched pastors and missionaries fall prey to a number of false teachings that are um, coming into the evangelical church. For example, there's a, a thing called the New Perspective on Paul. And uh, it basically denies the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. And I debated online for quite a while with a pastor who fell away into that error. And I remember telling him, I said, you don't have any good news to offer people because it's basically a message that join the covenant community and be faithful and you might be saved. That's not the gospel. There's a whole nother era, error called open theism. I've mentioned it in recent sermons. And it denies that God is sovereign over all that happens. And even that he doesn't know all that's going to happen in the future. And um, 
So that's an error that many are into. Some in this city teach that error. Another movement called the insider movement has flooded into the missions cause. And the insider movement is trying to relate the gospel to other uh, religious traditions and backgrounds in a way that they can understand, but in so doing, they compromise the gospel. For example, in relating to Muslims who... Uh, they, they try and diminish the fact that Jesus is the Son of God because that's offensive to Muslims. Rather than explaining it, they play it down. And uh, they are doing the same even in relating to the native cultures here, trying to um, argue that the God of the Bible is the same as the great spirit that the native people worship and so on. And so they end up compromising the gospel in the attempt to share the gospel. And uh, another error, um, many evangelicals, this movement is sweeping Africa. It's rife in China. It's here in the States, is the health and wealth heresy. God's, view, God's will for you, they teach, is that you be wealthy and healthy, have no diseases and so on, claim your healing by faith. That is all over the evangelical world, and it's clearly contrary to Scripture. I mean, if people would just open their eyes, they would see that there are no 150-year-old health and wealth teachers. They all die about the same time as we do. And uh, it's just false teaching, and it's rife. And so Paul's instruction here is given to help us stay faithful to the gospel in uh, times, and they've always been times, when all these winds of false teaching are blowing. First of all, he focuses on the blessings of reconciliation, that we who were alienated from God are now reconciled to God through Christ's death. That's in verses 21 and 22. And first, Paul reminds us of where we were at when God intervened in our lives, namely, we were all alienated from God because of our sin. Verse 21, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Now, perhaps you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. You know, uh, uh, Paul is writing here to a bunch of people who were raw pagans when the gospel came to them. And that, <clears throat> that may be true of them. But me, I was raised in the church, and uh, I accepted Christ as a child. I was never alienated from him, and I was never hostile toward him. Or maybe you came to Christ when you were older and not from a Christian home, but still you would say, I've never been an atheist, you know. I've never been out there just militant against God, and so I'm not hostile toward God. That doesn't describe me. And so you would think words like alienated and hostile and evil deeds are just kind of extreme words. In faithfulness to the scripture, however, I need to say that if you feel that way at all, uh, you, you either don't know God sufficiently or you don't know your own heart sufficiently. Uh, let me give a word of testimony. I was raised in a Christian home. Um, <clears throat> one of 
my very earliest memories. I was three years old, and I, it was in the morning. My mother was ironing, and I told her I wanted to ask Jesus into my heart. And my dad had been working nights, and so we went in and woke him up and knelt by the bed, and I prayed to ask Jesus to come into my heart. I don't know if I was saved then or later or when, <clears throat> but we were in church every Sunday at home <clears throat> in a drawer. I have a, a seven-year pin for perfect attendance at Sunday school. Didn't miss a Sunday for seven years. I think it was longer, but I think uh, I just didn't get the badge. And uh, so I come from a pretty straight background, but I'm here to tell you the longer I'm a Christian, the more I am appalled at the sinfulness of my heart before God. And, uh, you know, part of that sinfulness is pride, and it's pride that leads us to say, well, yeah, sure, I mean, I know I got my faults, but I'm not a bad sinner. That's pride, and that's sin. Our alienation from God was due to two things. God is absolutely holy and opposed to all sin. God is righteous. He has settled wrath against all sin. The second thing is us. On my part, I am sinful due to Adam, born in sin, born with selfishness and pride that causes me to ignore the God who created me and go my own way and be self-sufficient. And so there is an alienation because God in His holiness cannot tolerate sin. And I in my sin cannot get rid of my sin. I cannot eradicate it on my own. And you'll note in our text that sin is not just external. It begins in the mind And it works its way outward. Paul says we were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Now, if you have an uh, NIV, New International Version, they botched the translation here, okay? I don't know how they came up with this, but they make it sound as if our evil deeds are the cause of our uh, sinful thoughts and not the other way around. Uh, The reverse is true. The Bible is very clear. Jesus taught in Mark 7, all sin originates in the heart, in the mind. It comes outward from inside. And so dealing with my sin is not just a matter of cleaning up the outside. We can do that sometimes. But the problem is, I need to change my heart. And I can't do that myself. Romans chapter 8. Verses 7 and 8, Paul writes this, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's that word that's in our text. It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law, law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And then, in case you missed it, he adds, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're incapable of it. Now, we may be able to dress up the outside. People can reform morally. People can go to AA and stop drinking and so on and become responsible. 
but you can't clean up your heart on your own. You know, you can dress a pig in a tuxedo, but it's still going to go wallow in the mud because you haven't changed the nature of the beast. It's still a pig. Pigs are born to like to wallow in mud. And as sinners, we are born with a love of sin and a hatred of God's ways, of righteousness. And part of the sin that we are prone to is the pride that says, well, you know, I'm a basically good person. And God should accept me because I do good deeds. That's part of our sin problem. The good news is this. Every New Testament, excuse me, every New Testament passage dealing with this wonderful doctrine of reconciliation shows that God takes the initiative to reconcile sinners to himself. Uh, It's not dependent on our efforts to get right with God. It's dependent on his sending his son to be the sacrifice for our sin. And that's what Paul talks about here in verse 22, that God reconciled us to Christ or to himself through Christ's death. Note verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. In another great text on reconciliation in Romans 5, uh, Paul says in verses 10 and 11, <clears throat> For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Now, maybe at this point, somebody is thinking, well, I don't get what the big deal is about sin. I mean, after all, in human relationships, somebody wrongs you, you forgive him. So why can't God just let bygones be bygones and forgive our sin? I mean, why did Christ need to die? And at the same time, my sins aren't that bad. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I I uh, am not a bad person. I'm faithful to my wife. I work to support my family, good citizen, all of that. So what's the big deal? Why does God have to send his own son to die for my sin? That just seems radical. Now, if you can relate it all to those thoughts again, I'm going to say you don't sufficiently understand who God is or who you are in God's sight. Uh, Our tolerant culture lives in a time where we ought to just forgive everybody and everything and, you know, accept everybody and their sin. And we tend to pull God down and make God into kind of a benign old grandfather. You know, he's a nice old guy up in heaven, a little senile maybe. Uh, Yeah, he loves us and uh, he doesn't like our sin, but... He's not really judgmental. He's not going to judge our sin. In fact, being judgmental is seen very negatively in our culture. And uh, then we lift ourselves up. And we compare ourselves with these terrorists that slaughter people off, as happened this week in California. And we say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. And then the whole idea of God's wrath, frankly, is kind of embarrassing To evangelicals today, I mean, a wrathful God, we want to tamp that down and steer around that one. 
About a hundred years ago, a man by the name of R.W. Dale observed, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. So we pulled God down, we lift ourselves up, we kind of do away with the idea of wrath, and hey, what's the problem? But listen, if God were not intolerant of sin, he would not be God. If God did not judge sin, all sin, he would not be God because he is perfectly holy and just. And an unholy being is not God. And an unjust God is not God. For example, say a robber killed your mother to take her purse. And he goes in before the judge and the judge comes off the bench and gives him a big bear hug and says, Hey, I love you, man. Try not to do that anymore you would be outraged and say, that is not just. I mean, that judge is evil to let that sin go unjudged. And while God is love, his love never compromises his holiness or his justice. And so the question is, well, how can God both be holy and just and loving at the same time? And the answer is, That through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, God paid the penalty that his justice demands sin uh, be, uh, be paying. He paid on the cross the penalty we deserve for our sins. Now, Paul here is probably combating the Colossian error. You'll notice he piles up words in kind of a redundant fashion. He says, he reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. It's like he's he's adding words. Why is he doing that? Probably the Colossian heretics were saying Jesus isn't fully human. He's some sort of an emanation from God, but he's not fully human. Last week, I think I quoted Bishop Mool who said, A Savior not quite God is a bridge broken on the farther end. Well, we could turn that around and say, A Savior not quite human is a bridge broken on the front end. Uh, He must be fully man and fully God to atone for our sin in a way that satisfies God and yet uh, covers human sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, another great text on reconciliation, Paul says this, He, that is God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, Jesus was perfect, but he made him to be sin on our behalf. What a radical statement. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God took our sin and put it on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bore our sin. He took Jesus' righteousness and put it on us. And so in that way, as Paul puts it in Romans 3, uh, 3.26, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because the sin has been paid for. So what I've been saying here is this. The basis of reconciliation is judicial. The penalty had to be paid in the courtroom of God. Jesus paid it. For all who have believed in him. 
But that's not the full picture. The beauty of this truth of reconciliation is it's a relational word. I mean, reconciliation is relational. And I, I don't know that there's a more beautiful text than Romans 5.8 where Paul says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God coming into reconciliation. And perhaps there's no more apt picture of reconciliation in the Bible than this, the parable Jesus told the prodigal son. I think we all know that story and love it, but you remember it, that the young man, he's rather abrasive and impudent, and he asks his father for his inheritance before his dad is even on deaths, uh, on a deathbed. The father very graciously gives the boy his inheritance. He goes off to the far country and squanders it on loose living. He comes to his senses, says, you know, even my father's hired hands are treated better and I'm living here. I'll go home and just see if I can get hired on as one of my dad's hired hands. And the beauty of the story is, as the boy's going home, the father sees him from afar. And you know what that tells you? He was looking. He was looking every day on the horizon for his boy. And here he comes. And the father does something very undignified in that culture. He pulls up his robes, tucks them into his belt. Men, that was undignified for a man. And he runs to his son. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And he brings him home and puts the robe on him and throws the party and rejoices because now his son has been reconciled. And reconciliation is a love word. It's a beautiful relational word. But that's not all the story. <clears throat> As you know, there was another character in the story, the older brother. And the older brother is a picture, <clears throat> perhaps, I hope not, but maybe of someone here. He, he's somebody who's always been straight. You know, he grew up in the church. He says to his father, look, I've served you all my life. I, I've never disobeyed your commands. I've worked hard for you. you know, so, so he's priding in his self-righteousness. And a major part of that story is to say, if you're trusting in your self-righteousness, you're just as alienated from the father as that brother who was the prodigal. And Jesus was hitting that at the Pharisees, of course, in his day. But his self-righteousness blinded him to the fact he was not in close relation with the father. He needed reconciliation just as much as his prodigal brother did. Back in the 18th century, there was a British noblewoman by the name of Lady Huntington. She knew the Lord. And she was trying to evangelize her fellow upper-class British citizens. And she invited a number of her lady friends to come and hear the great evangelist George Whitfield. And Whitfield shot straight, okay? And she got this reply from the proud Duchess of Buckingham. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. <laughs> See what she's saying? 
I am not a sinner like these people in the gutter are. I am a woman of high rank and noble breeding. Thank you. And I don't need to be told that I am a sinner. Well, I'm sorry, but to be reconciled to God, Paul says, first of all, you've got to realize you were formerly alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds in the sight of God, and you're just as sinful as, in her words, the common wretches that crawl on the earth. And you've got to see that God provides everything for reconciliation, but your self-righteousness alienates you from the Father, just like that older brother in the story. And so you have to come to God as a sinner through the death of Jesus, and there's relationship restored. Now, why does God reconcile himself to us through Christ's death? Paul says, God's goal in reconciliation is to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the end of verse 22. In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So on judgment day, you'll be standing before God and that will be your condition. It's similar to what Jude says in verse 24. He says, he is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's a stunning statement. I mean, some of us know somebody that we might might venture to say, yeah, I think he's blameless and beyond reproach. But chances are you're only seeing him on Sunday. You know, you're not seeing him during the week. You don't know him really well. And you'd say, yeah, yeah, he seems to be blameless and beyond reproach. But you're just looking at the outward veneer, aren't you? To be able to stand before Him, the holy God who knows every thought, every motive I've ever had, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, that just sounds impossible. How can that be true? Well, Paul is and Jude, they're looking at the final result of, of what the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification is... Becoming set apart to God, being made holy. And there's three aspects of it in the Bible. There's first of all what we might call positional sanctification. And that is the moment you trust Christ, God sets you apart in Jesus Christ. Paul even says in Ephesians 2, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. So we are seen by the Father in Christ, um, clothed with his righteousness. That's positional. Then the second aspect of it is progressive, or you might call it practical sanctification. And that is, as we grow in Christ, we grow to be more like Him. We grow in holiness as we learn to obey Him in our daily walk. And that will never be perfect in this life, but it should be progressive. If you're a Christian now and been one for 10 years, you should look back and say, Wow, thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I'm going to be, but I'm in process. You're you're growing. And then there's the final result, which we might call perfect sanctification. Perfect sanctification will happen either when we die or when Jesus comes. And John says in 1 John 3, we will see him and we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And at that moment, our old sin nature will be eradicated 
gone forever, hallelujah. We won't have to fight it anymore, and we will be perfectly sanctified as Jesus is. And so that's the process. Now, does that mean, hallelujah, it's going to happen, I can kick back? No. And Paul goes on here to show the responsibility then of those who are reconciled. And that is to continue in the faith of the true gospel. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul there mentions three aspects of this Uh, our responsibility as a reconciled people. First of all, continuing in the faith means being grounded and steadily growing in the hope of the gospel. Now, when Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, some of your translations may have in your faith. It could be translated either your faith or the faith. Um, I think it means the faith because Paul is writing against the Colossian heresy. And he wants these people to continue in the faith, the gospel. Uh, When he says, if you continue, he's not expressing doubt on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's giving a warning. So there's no doubt, but there's a warning. Okay, let me explain that. Um, The no doubt part is like Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, where he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. If God began a work in you, he's going to keep you. He's going to perfect it. That's what Jesus said in John 6, too, where he said, of all the Father gives me, I'm going to keep them all. I won't lose a single one. So that's certain. That's that. And yet at the same time, There is a responsibility to persevere in the faith. True faith perseveres. And that's the other side of it. And so there's this implicit warning there in the if word that says, yes, God will keep you, but you must walk with Christ. You must persevere and remain in the faith. Let me try and explain. The Bible presents two truths And I have seen Christians get carried away with one or the other to the neglect of the other and get out of balance. Those two truths are this. God is absolutely sovereign over all that is. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And people are responsible. Okay? And you can't let go of either side. I've seen people that get carried away with the sovereignty of God to the point that they neglect responsibility. That's wrong. I've seen people get carried away with responsibility to the extent that they negate the sovereignty of God. And that's wrong. God, who saves us, will keep us. He is sovereign. But how does He keep us? Through our perseverance, through our obedience, through our holding firmly to the faith. Let me use another example. God sovereignly elects all whom He saves before the foundation of the world. It's true. Ephesians 1. So do we kick back and say, well, they'll all get saved? No. He does that through our faithful preaching the gospel to every creature. 
So both are true, aren't they? God's sovereign. We are responsible. That's what Paul's getting at here. Now, our responsibility here, Paul says, is to be firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Established points at a foundation. If you've ever built anything, you know a foundation is not an afterthought. A foundation is crucial, unless you're building a chicken coop. You know, you can throw down a few bricks and throw up the coop. It might blow down in the wind, but no great loss. But if you want to build a house, or if you want to build a church or a building, you've got to lay a solid foundation. The foundation of the Christian faith is the gospel. The gospel of Christ. And I have to ask, are you clear on the gospel? I thought about doing this, and I'm not going to do it. But what if I said to you right now, turn to your neighbor, and in 60 seconds, I want you to explain the gospel. Could you do it? And if you're going, oh boy, I don't know about that, then you need a foundation. You need to be founded in the gospel so you can explain it to others and support it with Scripture. Not just I think, but here's what the Bible says. Beyond that, you need to lay a foundation of solid understanding of basic Bible doctrine. Um, The enemy, when he attacks, always attacks the basics. The Trinity. Every false cult denies the Trinity. You need to understand that, and how can you support it in Scripture? The person and work of Christ. That's always under attack in the false teachers. The inerrancy of Scripture. Salvation by grace through faith alone. Uh, Christ's second coming, the hope of His coming. The need for holiness. Legalism. We'll see that in chapter 2. Legalism always floods into churches and perverts the grace of God in the gospel. And so if you're not grounded, founded on solid doctrine, then you're just going to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. And Satan makes sure there's plenty of winds blowing at all times. And so here's a practical application. If you've never done it before, buy a good study Bible. A good study Bible. I think the ESV study Bible is good. MacArthur has one that's not bad, but ESV I I like. Buy a good study Bible and read it through in the coming year. I talk to Christians who say they've never read the Old Testament. Wow. If you never read the Old Testament, you don't understand the New Testament. Just get it, and, and you can go online, and you can find Bible reading plans, and two chapters in the Old, and, uh, well... Four chapters a day, I think. You can get through the whole Bible in a year with no problem. And read the the footnotes. And the ESV Study Bible will give you an introduction to every book. I just started 1 Samuel this morning. And it will give you the background of the book, the history of the book, the themes of the book, uh, deal with some of the problems in the book, give you an outline of the book. And then as you read through it, it gives you footnotes on here's what this verse is talking about or this verse. And helps you understand the basic flow of the Word of God. So, get grounded. Then secondly, Paul says our responsibility of continuing in the faith means 
holding to the true gospel, especially in the face of false teaching. I think one of the most prevalent subjects in the New Testament are warnings about false teachers. It's all through the Bible. And almost all false teaching, as I just said, attacks the essentials of the gospel. Something to do with the gospel. Satan's hacking away at that because the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. The Bible is clear. Genuine faith perseveres in the truth of the gospel. It doesn't fall away. In Matthew 24, Jesus warned, in the end times, many will fall away. And we're in the end times. And he also warned that the, the love of many will grow cold. And then he added this, Matthew 24, 13. He said, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So perseverance in the gospel is a test of genuine faith, holding fast to that truth, especially when false teachers come in. And then finally, continuing in the faith means proclaiming the apostolic gospel to all people. Paul adds there at the end of verse 23 concerning the gospel, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, what does Paul mean? It was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Well, I think he's using some poetic license there, some hyperbole or exaggeration to make his point. And his point is this. The one true gospel is spreading all over the Roman Empire. It's the same gospel Epaphras preached to you, Colossians. It's the same message I preach everywhere I go. And it is... Uh, it has universal appeal. You don't have to change the message. And while certainly we need to be sensitive to various cultures when we share the gospel, we shouldn't be needlessly offensive. At the same time, if you don't compromise the gospel, it's going to be foolishness to some and an offense to others. Just like that lady, uh, the Duchess of uh, Buckingham, was offended by the gospel, it will offend because it tells people you have sinned against God and you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save. And to those who believe, of course, it's the power of God to salvation. Now, when Paul says, I was made a minister, as I said when I read the text, uh, the word means a servant. It means a servant. He, he doesn't mean I went to seminary and I got ordained and now I am full-time in the ministry. None of those were true of Paul. He didn't go to seminary. He never got ordained, and he supported himself in the ministry. And here's the truth. If you believed in Jesus, you're as much a servant of the gospel as Paul was. You're a servant. And servants don't have the option of disobedience. <laughs> servants have to do what their master directs. And... Jesus directed that his servants would be his ambassadors. And that means that wherever you work, wherever you live, the people you know, that's your mission field. And you're a representative of Christ in those areas. And if you don't know how, get some training in how to share your faith. Because you need to take advantage of those opportunities. First of all, 
Write down the names of these people you have contact with who don't know the Savior and pray for them. And then we'll see in chapter 4 how Paul says, pray for me that I'd make the gospel clear as I need to. That's Paul. So that's our job. Different ways you can apply this message, and it's going to depend totally on where you're at. Someone here, even maybe somebody who grew up in the church, but you've never been reconciled to God through faith in Christ because maybe you thought, I'm a good person. Hey, I go to church every week, man. You know, I've served the church. Doesn't matter. If you've never come in repentance to Christ, that is your desperate need today. A man named Thomas Fuller said this, You cannot repent too soon because you don't know how soon it will be too late. Good word, huh? You could walk out of here and get struck by a meteor or a bus or whatever and you're standing before God. Christ died for sinners. And if you'll trust Christ right now, you'll have His covering, His righteousness. There may be somebody else and you're a Christian, but honestly, you're not grounded in the faith. You don't know these basic doctrines. You've never read the Bible. Get started. Um, Come to the new member class tonight. I'm going to be talking about our church doctrinal statement and what we believe. There's a start. Um, John Piper, I believe, on his website has a Baptist catechism. And it's just a basic tool of questions and answers on basic Bible truth. You can use it for yourself. If you've got kids, train your kids in it. I wish I had done that with my kids. I didn't do that, but... um, That's a great tool. Um, If you can't explain the gospel, there's opportunities to get trained in how to do that. Evangelism explosion or the way of the master. You can get stuff online. Learn how to share your faith. So when the opportunities come, you're ready. You're equipped. But the point of our text is this. If you enjoy the blessings of reconciliation, then you're responsible to continue in the true faith of the gospel. Let's bow before the Lord. Lord, you know every heart here. I certainly don't. You know all of our needs. And I would ask that your Holy Spirit would break into the hearts of any who are outside of Christ. That this day would not go by without them calling out to you. And begging you for mercy through Christ that they would be saved. I ask, Lord, that if your children are here and they're just babes in the faith, that you would give them strength and resolve to grow in the coming new year in Christ. That we would be grounded and rooted and founded in Christ and in the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, you give us opportunities to be servants of the gospel to others. That we would see people coming to faith. Bless the rest of our day now. The fellowship time in the, uh, around the supper together, the potluck time. And our evening time together in the new member class. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.